Well, our text this morning is Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6, if you want to turn there. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, just a question to pose to you. How would we figure out who is the greatest person who ever lived? How would we go about deciding on who that is? Uh, Maybe we could try to find some way to quantify someone's achievements or life experiences, you know, and compare them to other people. Uh, or maybe what we could do is just take people's stories and just set them up right next to each other and uh, just compare them. Uh, let, let's just try to do that quick here this morning. Let's just let's take a shot at here the story of the greatest man who ever lived. All right, take one and I I'll we'll reveal his name till the end, so just see if you can figure out who this is. All right? The greatest man who ever lived, take one. Around the year 1400 BC, there was a boy born among slaves. His family lacked status, resources, and power, and for all we know, his father died when he was very young. Uh, as an infant, a death sentence was placed on his head. And he should have been slaughtered with hundreds of other young boys his age. But under unique circumstances, he managed to escape execution. Uh, And in a marvelously ironic twist of circumstances, he was an average boy who turned out to be raised by royalty under the very care of the royal family that ordered his execution. He grew up to be a young man who fled out into the wilderness and was called by God for a special task. He became a shepherd, and through him, God would rescue his people from slavery. Uh, Because of his calling, uh, he served as a prophet who spoke God's words to God's people. God did many signs and wonders through him. Uh, These signs and wonders defied nature, and uh, they they proved that he was God's messenger. He, He ended up defying the king that held his people in slavery, and courageously and miraculously led his people out of the place of slavery to a land where they had been promised freedom and security forever. His name, of course, was Moses, and after he died, it was written of him that no prophet had ever arisen after him who knew God face to face and who did such great signs and wonders in order to save God's people. He is one of the most famous people in history. Uh, his, his story has been told for thousands of years. Uh, numerous movies have been made about him. He's been portrayed by the likes of Charlton Heston and Sir Ben Kingsley and Val Kilmer and Christian Bale and, of course, Larry the Cucumber. He is easily counted among the greatest men who ever lived, and he plays a crucial role in our text this morning. Let's look at Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house, has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house 
as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed your will and your character and your truth to us in your word. We thank you that your will and character and truth have been revealed to us most clearly through your Son. It is him that is the that he is the reason why we're gathered here this morning. It is for his fame and for his glory. And God, it's our prayer that our lives would bring him glory, even more glory glory than our lives currently do. So would you bless us this morning? Give us eyes to see and humble hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How, how do you get to heaven? This is a good question to uh, pull out of your bag when you're trying to engage someone in a spiritual conversation. How do you get to heaven? get a lot of different answers to a question like that if you're just going to go ask people on the street. Uh, how do you get to heaven? You, you have to do enough good works. Uh, you have to behave in the right way. You have to pray the right way. You have to worship the right way. You have to eat the right way or fast the right way. You have to serve the right way. You have to meditate the right way in order to get to heaven. Those are some of the explicit answers uh, people might give. But we also have implicit answers, ways that we answer that question that we maybe wouldn't say out loud, but that maybe become evident as people get to know us better, if people get to know other people better. How do, you, how do you get to heaven? Well, you have to spend your money in the right way. Uh, you have to adhere to a certain health code. Uh, you have to vote a particular way. Uh, you have to parent your kids in a particular way. You have to educate your kids in a particular way. You have to enjoy recreation a certain way. You have to dress in a certain way. You have to do church in a certain way. You have to be able to articulate your beliefs in a certain way kind of way. Our text this morning answers this question, how do you get to heaven? This text is not addressed to unbelievers. You'll notice that in verse 1, he, he's addressing holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. The way you share in a heavenly calling is you need to consider Jesus and hold fast to Jesus. Consider Jesus and hold fast to Jesus. These are the two things we're going to look at this morning, spending the majority of the time in uh, uh, the first part of that. And that might sound like a very simple sermon. That sound, might sound like it's something that is just obvious. But listen, this is, this is the fight of our lives. This is the fight of the Christian life. This is not easy for us. So let's look at this this morning. Let's first look at considering Jesus, what it means to consider Jesus, having lives that consider Jesus. And let's start by taking a look at Moses. Uh, let's start by looking at Moses' glory this morning. Uh, Kent Hughes has said that a proper title for Moses might be the great apostle and high priest of the Old Testament. That might be one way we could think of Moses, the great apostle and high priest 
of the Old Testament. Moses is probably the greatest figure of the Old Testament. Now, you might disagree with that, uh, but he is certainly a contender for the greatest figure of the Old Testament. Uh, I, I realize there's other, there's other contenders, but let's just consider a few of the accolades that, that Moses has going for him here. Uh, just to start out with, we, we know a lot about Moses. We know a lot about uh, well, a lot in comparison to others, we know a lot about his his birth. We know some about his childhood and young adult years and into his early years. We actually have a fairly decent grasp on Moses' life from beginning to end, which which isn't true of actually most of the people in the Bible. We know that that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, which which really serve as the foundation for the rest of the Bible, or at least the foundation for the rest of the whole Old Testament. So he's he's an author of, of significant passages of Scripture. Uh, Moses leads the most significant event of the Old Testament. Uh, without a doubt, the Exodus is the most significant event that happens in the Old Testament. We know this because there's a sense in which uh, the whole book of Genesis is leading up to that event that takes place in Exodus. And then after the Exodus, the rest of the Old Testament is always looking back to the Exodus and referring back to the Exodus and recalling the Exodus and, and hoping for another kind of Exodus to happen. And Moses is the person who leads the most significant this, this most significant Old Testament event. Moses serves in a number of different significant roles too. He serves as a prophet. He speaks God's words to God's people. He serves as a kind of a priest who, who intercedes for God's people. And he also even, you could, you could say he serves as a kind of king. Now he's never referred to as a king, but uh, but he certainly has this role of, of leading Israel, and he's even judging Israel. And uh, he, he's not called the king, but he serves in, in, this, in this king-like kind of role. So Moses is, is certainly a contender for the greatest figure in the Old Testament. Uh, even looking at Jewish tradition in the time of Christ, there's sects of Judaism who... Uh, uh, we, we know that first century Jews held angels in a high regard, but there's some sects of Judaism who held Moses in, in a position even higher than angels. So a, a very high esteem for Moses. We see in verse 2 here that Moses is faithful. It says he's faithful in all God's house. And what that is, that's actually a reference back to something God says in, in Numbers chapter 12. You might remember the story in Numbers chapter 12 of when Aaron and, and Miriam opposed Moses uh, the people of Israel, they spend a little over a year at Mount Sinai after they're rescued from Egypt and get organized at Mount Sinai and they receive uh, the law there and they, and they receive the instructions for the tabernacle and get that built and then they, they set off to, to go to the promised land of, of Canaan. And uh, on the way there, there's some complaining, there's some issues, and one of the issues before they get to Canaan is here we have two leaders in Moses, or in, two leaders in Israel opposing Moses, Aaron and Miriam. And uh, on the uh, on the face of it, it looks like they're they're angry because uh, he of, of who he has chosen to marry. He he married someone outside of the people of Israel. Uh, but once we read a little bit further, it's clear that that's not the real issue. The real issue is that they're jealous of, of Moses' position. And God rebukes Aaron and Miriam in Numbers chapter 12. Here's what God says in verses 6 and 8. He says, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. So 
Moses portrayed here as a very significant figure. There's a very high view of Moses here. Moses has a significant role even among the prophets. God speaks to prophets, but there's a sense in which Moses speaks to God as a prophet in, uh, in an even more significant way. So this is a high view of Moses. We look and we see in verse 5 that Moses is faithful in all God's house as a servant. And that might even seem to us as, as somewhat of a lowly title, but that's also, it's actually an exalted title here. The, the word servant here is, is not one looking at uh, someone who's of a lower class. It, it, it actually has a connotation with someone of a position of, of nobility. So, so Hebrews is making the case that it's not so much that Moses is lower so that Jesus looks better. It's that Moses is, is actually this exalted view of Moses and Jesus is yet even, even better than that. We also see in verse 5 that, that Moses testified to the things that were to be spoken later. And uh, in many ways, Moses uh, prefigures and he anticipates something and someone that's to come who's much greater than he is. Uh, Moses was never meant to be the final word, uh, the, the, the final uh, revelation of how, how people were going to relate to God. He anticipates one who's to come later. He even writes... In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Moses anticipates and testifies to one who's going to come later, who's, who's even greater. So it's just important to note how Moses and Jesus are compared here. It's, it's not bad versus good. It's, it's good versus, versus greatest. But, but there's a danger... There's a danger in focusing on Moses. There's a, there's a danger in, in focusing and placing a, a too high of an emphasis on Moses once we have revelation of who Jesus is. There's, there's some people who, who place an intentional focus on Moses today. So e- even people who have a full understanding uh, of the Bible, who understand who Jesus is, uh, there's still an emphasis to place on Moses. And some people place an intentional focus on him. The logic kind of goes like this. You're reading through your Old Testament and you're seeing all these laws and, and, and you think to yourself, you know, if all these things pleased God at one point in history, they must still please God today. And, and there be, there, you take on this, this, this focus on these things that we need to incorporate into our lives and conform to our lives. The, the problem is evangelism starts looking really different uh, when there's that intentional focus on Moses. There might be a mention of Jesus, but the focus is on Moses so that uh, you, you end up, the, the message of your, uh, of your faith turns out to be the, the Old Testament really shows us how to live. It's, it's the Old Testament that really shows us how to please God. That, that's that's uh, certain groups that place an intentional focus on Moses. Most of us probably aren't so tempted to do that. Most of us might be tempted to place an unintentional focus on Moses. Moses is, is of course, really closely associated with the law, right? The law is given through Moses on Mount Sinai. So what we're reading through all those first books of, of our Bibles is, is the law, is, is uh, rules, if, uh, if you want to think of them that way. And the trap we easily fall into is a focus on Moses in, in, in the sense of focusing on law, focusing on rules. And once again, evangelism can start to look really different. But for most of us, there might be a very clear proclamation of the good news, of who Jesus is, of how to be reconciled to God through Jesus. 
But the focus of our lives can start to shift too. And as we start to relate to people and, and, and tell people about what really matters most, it's, it's easy to fall into the trap of, you know, yeah, I, I, we're saved by grace, but it's, it's really important that you eat and drink like this. Or, yeah, we're saved by grace, but you can't spend your free time like that. Or, yeah, we're saved, we're saved by grace, but, but you can really only vote like this. Uh, yeah, we're saved by grace, but you, you can't struggle with that. Yeah, we're, 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 we're saved by grace, but, but you can't enjoy that. This doesn't mean that Scripture doesn't have anything to say about our lives. The, the Bible has, has much to say about every single facet of our lives. This isn't to say that there's not a place for repentance in the Christian life, but, but the, the issue comes down to focus. The in, issue comes down to what we consider most. The issue comes, on, comes down to the emphasis that we place on particular details of the Christian life. The, the main thing we're after, the main thing we're passionate about. Just a couple questions to help Maybe think through this. What, what is the main topic you tend to bring up in conversation with others? What's the main thing you can be talking about anything, what you tend to bring up? What's the main thing you tend to just think about when you have free time, when you're in, in, in the car by yourself, or you have some free time in the evenings or on a weekend? Uh, what, what's the main thing people know you for? If, uh, if you're not around and someone mentions your name, what, what do you, what comes to the people's minds, do you think? What's the main thing you're associated with in other people's minds? Another way to gauge this, what, what's the main thing, uh, your social media posts post, or point to? If, if someone was gonna try to get a theme of, of your online presence and statement, what would that be? What would a summary of that be? Or maybe you're not on social media, but but what would be the main thing you're known for bringing up at uh, coffee with the guys or coffee with with the girls? Is it Jesus? Is it rules? Is it particular details of what it looks like to live out the Christian life? Is it the old life? Is it the old self? The old religion? The, the danger in considering Moses' glory or, or the law and rules that are associated with Moses, the danger of considering Moses' glory is that it reveals a heart whose confidence and hope is in yourself. It reveals a heart whose confidence and hope is in yourself. God does not intend for us to mainly consider Moses. Ultimately, He, he does not consider for us to mainly Consider Moses. It's good for us to know who Moses is. But, but the author of Hebrews would have us consider Jesus, to consider Jesus' glory. And when he says consider Jesus, he's not just talking about, hey, hey consider Jesus for a moment. The, the issue is the main focus of your life. And when he says consider Jesus, he's also not saying, you know, in just sort of some kind of uh, superficial, uh, sentimental, personal, subjective sense. You know, you hear people talk like this. Uh, you know, I, I've got this relationship with Jesus. I go everywhere with Jesus. He's always talking to me. I'm always talking to him. And, uh, the more people talk about it, it's almost as like Jesus is kind of this blank mannequin that, that, uh, we kind of just dress up, uh, the way we kind of like him to look. And we put his hat on like this and he dresses like this and he kind of coordinates with me. And, uh, that's, that is not the kind of, is he, we're not 
told here to consider Jesus and sort of the way he just exists in our own minds. The author is getting us or asking us, pleading with us, to consider Jesus according to who he is according to Scripture. And here in verse 1, Jesus is called the great apostle and high priest of our confession. We don't just consider sort of nebulous, general, cultural Jesus. We're to consider Jesus the great apostle and high priest of our confession. This is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus is referred to as an apostle. Uh, typically, uh, we refer to apostles as the, the main people who followed Jesus as his most significant uh, followers. Uh, but, but here Jesus is referred to as an apostle. An apostle just means sent one. And it makes sense that, in, in a sense, Jesus is the ultimate sent one. God sent many people to, or many people to his people. He sent many uh, specific servants to his people, but, but Jesus is the ultimate sent one. He's the ultimate one sent by God to be with his people and identify with his people and suffer with his people and for his people. So he's, he's the great apostle. He's the ultimate apostle. He's also the great high priest of our confession. Uh, the author of Hebrews has, has already mentioned Jesus' priestly work so far already in, the, in, in chapters 1 and 2. You look at Hebrews 1, 3, Jesus made purification for sins. Or There's even more details just above here in, in verse 17 of chapter 2. Hebrews 2, 17, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In a sense, apostleship and high priesthood really summarize all of who Jesus is in the Bible. His apostleship, he's the ultimate sent one. That's who Jesus is. His high priesthood is, is what Jesus does. We, we need to consider Jesus as he's revealed in the Bible, who he is and what he has done. Moses was a kind of sent one. Moses was sent by God to his people for a specific task. He, so in that sense, Moses was a kind of apostle. Moses was also a kind of priest who interceded for his people and, and uh, certainly saved their lives on a few different occasions. Moses might be called the great apostle and high priest of the Old Testament, but Jesus is the ultimate great apostle and high priest of our confession, of, of what we believe, of what we affirm. So Jesus is more glorious than Moses. And there, there's at least three ways that Jesus is more glorious than, than Moses. We look at the first one starting here in verse 2. Jesus is more glorious as the builder of a house has more glory. Look at verse 2. Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. But Jesus just isn't just another Moses. It's just not, it's not like we just have another one who's come who succeeded him. Verse 3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. People love buildings. And if you don't think you love buildings, trust me, you, you probably like buildings more than you think. Uh, when, you know, we live in a town that's small enough. If a building goes up, we notice the buildings going up, especially if it's on uh, 6th Avenue. We, we notice buildings going up. I remember when we first moved to Aberdeen, the uh, new hospital was, building, built, was getting built, uh, the Sanford Hospital, and everyone was talking about the new hospital. And, uh, and once a new building is up, what's the honor? What, what's the honor everyone's looking for? The honor of being invited to tour the new, new building. And uh, Buildings have a, a, an artistry and uh, a, 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 there's a design to them. 
Uh, and, and obviously they have an important functional role. So, but people are, we're interested in buildings. It's always nice to go into a new building or a new house. We, we love our houses too, right? Uh, what, li- we, we talk about our houses. We spend all kinds of time in our houses. Uh, some people have the honor of living in a new house. I remember uh, as a kid, I had some friends and a couple of family members whose, whose parents had the resources to have a brand new house constructed. And it was so exciting to go and visit the new house and see the, you know, see where the rooms are going to be, you know, before the walls are up. And uh, then to go and see them again after, right after they were moved in. And it was so cool to go into this brand new house, fresh and new and clean, uh, new house smell, whatever that is. We, we, we love new houses. Some people love old houses. Uh, but why do people love old houses? People don't love old houses because, you know, some people like new stuff and other people like, you know, beat up old, worn out stuff. People love old houses because they love the history that, that goes along with old houses. They love the, the woodwork and, and the character of old houses and, and how they're designed. People don't build houses the same anyway. So, so people love new houses. People love old houses. People love to renovate houses. HGTV is uh, probably the most important channel on TV for, for most of the people in the room. I don't know. We love, we love buildings. But what happens when you go and visit a building? What, what do people say when you visit a building? People say things like, who built this? Man, who, who designed this? Who thought of this? That is such a good idea. Who, who thought to do that like that? Who furnished this house? Who decorated this house? The glory goes to the, to the designer, to the builder, to the, to the decorator. No one ever walks in and says, man, look at this. We had the, the, the wood and the metal and the brick and the paint and got together and it whipped itself up into this. What a great job, you know. No one ever talks like that. No, the glory doesn't go to the structure. The glory goes to the, the one who put the structure together. And, and Jesus is, is given the title of the builder here. He's associated with the build. Moses is, a, is, is associated with being a part of the house. He's associated with being part of the materials of the house. He's, he's a faithful part. He's an important part of the house. But Jesus is compared to the builder of the house. Jesus is, is more glorious as the builder, as the designer, as, as the one who accomplishes and completes salvation for his people. Jesus is, is he, he's not just more glorious as the builder of the house. He's also more glorious as the builder of all things. Look at verse 4. For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. And, and Jesus is being compared to God here. Uh, the, the author of Hebrews is very intent on giving us a clear and accurate picture of Jesus. And he, he really emphasizes both Jesus' humanity and Jesus' deity. And in this case, in this verse, he's really emphasizing Jesus' deity. Jesus is the builder of the house. God is the builder of all things. And the comparison here is that, that, that Jesus is, is, the, is, is the builder of, of all things. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the one through whom God, the world was, the world was created. So Jesus is, is the builder of the house. He's more glorious than Moses is the builder of the house. He's the more, he's more glorious as the builder of all things, the one who's associated with and equal with God. The third reason he's more glorious than Moses, we see in verses five and six, is he's, he's faithful over God's house as a son. Now Moses was faithful over God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Uh, during my, my senior year in high school, uh, my parents made a big decision. Uh, my dad quit his job, and they bought a plumbing business. 
And my dad worked his whole career in agriculture, but they bought this plumbing business, and it was really exciting. Uh, and for a whole lot of reasons. I mean, which one? My dad was going to be home more often. He traveled a lot, but this meant he was going to be home during the week and on on weeknights. And it's exciting because we uh, we acquired uh, this you know commercial real estate and this uh, building on on Highway Seven. And uh, I remember we got a new truck. The the company color was red, so we ended up getting this new cool red truck that had the company logo on it. You know, to promote and. Uh, advertised the the business and it was just it was an exciting time and uh, the other thing it meant for for me was that I was you know senior in high school it meant that I was probably gonna have a summer job or my summer job was probably already chosen for me I should say uh, in between high school and college and and I worked there the the two summers uh, the one summer after my senior year and then after my freshman year in high school but I'll never forget my first day going to work for my dad at the plumbing business. Uh, I was I was really excited for the first day, and I think I think that was spring break actually. Um, but I remember showing up, and uh, the, my, the the job site was a new construction on a new house, and it wasn't just a new house; it was what I would consider a mansion. This this house had to been four thousand square feet or more. It was, it was one of these houses where you you drive up the driveway, the long driveway, and then it comes up and kind of appears in this clearing and. You know, the, the garage is over here, but the driveway kind of weaves around in a circle around this fountain and uh, just, you know, big and beautiful and rocks and stone. And um, I was so excited. I mean, I just I could only imagine what my first day of work was going to be like uh, working for the plumbing business. You know, uh, I figured I'd be working in these big bathrooms or their, their huge kitchen with a with a wood uh, brick oven. And uh, I just, I mean, I, I didn't know anything about plumbing, but I figured I'd be learning about, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe putting fixtures in or water lines or, or new pipe or, you know, I didn't know what to expect, but I was excited. I was, and I was really excited to go work at this house. And I remember pulling up, uh, my dad was already there, I think, but it was the, the master plumber kind of overseeing things that you know, was given directions. And uh, I remember I, I wasn't welcomed in the front door, uh, which I was, you know, that was, well, I, was, I wasn't right in the front door. I was ushered around to the back of the, the house. So it wasn't quite what I was expecting, but okay. So ushered around to the back of the house where there was, uh, there was a walkout basement. And, and that's where I was welcomed into the house. And I remember stepping in to the house, and I remember it was a dirt floor. Uh, you know, so it was just midway through construction. Didn't have floor in it. The, the, the structure was up, but still dirt floor in the basement. And uh, I remember they had told me to wear work clothes. And, you know, I figured, well, it's plumbing, you know, you don't want to wear nice clothes, so. Uh, and who, I just anticipated, what kind of tools would I be learning to use? Uh, what, what was this going to be like? And, I, you know, I'm in the basement, but that's okay, you know, we've got to work our way up, that makes sense, right? And um, I remember I was, I was ushered to the very corner of the basement, and I remember I was handed a shovel. And I wasn't expecting to be handed a shovel. I was handed a shovel, and I was told, Dig a trench, five to six feet deep, uh, approximately five feet wide, maybe, and a good hundred feet long. And I remember 15 minutes into my first day, I was seriously questioning how excited I was about working for the plumbing business. Uh, this was not what I expected. Uh, but the other thing I didn't expect about working for the plumbing business was relating with the other employees. 
Uh, I remember my dad really, he cared about the employees. He wanted to treat their employees well. It was just a small staff. And I remember there's even some employee issues down the road. And I, you know, I didn't know all the details, but I remember just my dad agonizing because, you know, he wanted to treat these guys well and, uh, he wanted to take care of them. And, uh, but what, what I remember was that I, that I didn't expect was the way that they treated me. I, I was the new owner's son and, they all from day one treated me with, with this honor. Uh, they, they treated me with, with respect. You know, uh, th- these were people who had spent their whole careers in, in plumbing and in, and in and, and HVAC technicians. And, uh, here's me with, with no experience, uh, very few skills, naive about everything, can't even dig a trench. And, uh, they, but they treated me with, with honor. And uh, the, the lesson I remember learning was it's, it's just sort of a rule written into uh, the nature of who we are. Uh, the son has a place of honor among the employees, uh, even regardless of, of, of skills. And, and listen, it's not like they gave me the, <laughs> they, they gave me the grunt work, but, uh, but there's the way they treated, treated me. I had this place of honor in my dad's business. And in a similar way here, Jesus is compared to Moses. Uh, it, it's one thing to be faithful in God's house as a servant. It's another thing to be faithful in God's house as a son. And, and the difference between me and Jesus is, is what I brought to the table and what I was in comparison to these employees and what Jesus brings to the table and what he is in comparison to Moses. Jesus' work far outseeds, far exceeds Moses. Moses was faithful in God's house. Jesus is faithful over God's house. He's the builder of God's house. So, so Jesus has more glory in Moses. Just, just, just think for a moment. Moses has a significant role. Moses, he, he delivers God's people from slavery in Egypt and leads them to the promised land of Canaan. Jesus delivers God's people from slavery to sin and eternal death, and he leads people to the new heavens and the new earth. It's good, but it's good compared to greatest. Jesus is the ultimate apostle sent by God to to lead his people. He's the ultimate high priest interceding for God's people and providing the sacrifice needed so that they can have eternal forgiveness. And the author of Hebrews is telling us, consider Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Don't forget Jesus. Three things. There's countless things, but just three things. Focusing on Jesus. Considering Jesus will do for your spiritual life. First of all, it will kill your self-righteousness. Considering Jesus will kill your self-righteousness. Jesus' righteousness makes our self-righteousness look ridiculous. His righteousness makes our self-righteousness look ridiculous. Jesus never speaks a careless word. Jesus, Jesus never has a wayward thought. Jesus is always considering others before himself. himself. He, Jesus never has a selfish desire. Jesus is always caring about others above himself. Jesus is always obedient in every circumstance. In Jesus' strongest words in Scripture are, are not reserved for sinners. Uh, Jesus' strongest words throughout the Gospels are, are, are reserved for people who are, are self-righteous. And I just wonder, as, as we consider who we are, we, we consider ourselves, maybe we think we know a lot of theology, or maybe we think we really have our lives 
put together, or maybe we really think that we're, we're the ones who take the Bible seriously. But I wonder, do people leave conversations with us feeling condemned, or do they leave feeling loved? Do, do people leave conversations with us feeling belittled, or they 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 leave feeling served? Do people leave conversations with us feeling stupid, or do you think they leave feeling hopeful? Do you think they leave feeling like they've been deceived, or they do they leave feeling like they've been told the truth in love? Second Corinthians two fourteen says that Jesus spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere through us. Jesus spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere through us. And I wonder, do people sense that they have met someone who knows Jesus when they meet us? Someone who knows Jesus will be growing in their knowledge of God. They'll be growing in their theology. Someone who knows Jesus will be growing in in their uh, likeness to the character of God. They'll be growing in, in their morality. But do we do we... Put Jesus on display for people. Is Jesus the main focus of our lives? Focusing on Jesus will kill your self-righteousness. Focusing on Jesus will also make you take your sin seriously. Focusing on Jesus, uh, it, this isn't out of some misplaced confidence in, in, in ourselves, but by meditating on the gravity of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, it will make you take your sin more seriously. As you consider that because of your sin, a man was scourged and whipped and beaten. That, that because of your sin, a man was publicly mocked and ridiculed. That because of your sin, real human blood was, was, was spilt. That real nails went into real hands. That because of your sin, the eternal Son of God suffered the eternal wrath of God. This is the apex of Jesus' work. This is what Jesus does for us because of our sin. Considering Jesus. Meditating on Jesus, our focus on Jesus will make us take our sin more seriously. Third and finally, focusing on Jesus will make you more holy. It will make you more holy. Look at uh, the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three here in Hebrews. Right, these chapter divisions weren't there originally. Right, look at what this says. Hebrews two, starting in verse eighteen, for because he himself suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. He's able to help. He, he helps those who are tempted. Therefore, consider Jesus. You, you need to consider Jesus. He'll help you be free from sin. You need to consider Jesus. He helps those who are being tempted. And we are people who are tempted. So Jesus is the ultimate apostle. He's the ultimate sent one. He, he has provided salvation for his people as, as, as a high priest, as the builder of God's house, God's people. Christians, Christians who are holy brothers, who, who share in a heavenly calling, Christians are people who place their focus and consider Jesus according to who he's revealed to be in Scripture. But the text also says, we are only a part of God's house if... We hold fast. We hold fast. How do we hold fast to Jesus? It says we're included in God's house if we hold to our confidence and our boasting in our hope, verse 6. Or if you've got the, the NIV, our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Or another translation says our confidence and the hope in which we boast. 
All this is saying, it's our confidence that Jesus really is who he says he is. It's, it's our hope in the fact that Jesus' sacrifice for sins really does achieve eternal salvation for his people. It's our confidence and our hope that Jesus is who he is. The, the author uses the same language in, in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, says, Therefore, brothers, since we have this confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We're included in God's house if we don't hope in ourselves, but we hold fast to our hope in Jesus. As uh, Al Mohler says, our, our works neither save us nor keep us saved. Our works don't save us. Our works don't keep us saved. Holding fast it doesn't require perfect faith. It requires persevering faith. Holding fast means boasting in Christ alone. Hoping in Christ alone. Holding fast means we enter God's kingdom by faith that perseveres and never stops considering Jesus. We, we must strive to consider Jesus. We must strive to hold fast to our hope in Jesus. How would you determine the greatest man who ever lived? You could set their stories right beside each other. Let's, let's try this one more time. The greatest man who ever lived, take two. Around the year 1 A.D., there was a boy born among slaves. His family lacked status, resources, and power. For all we know, his father died when he was very young. As an infant, a death sentence was placed on his life, but under unique circumstances, he managed to escape execution. And in a marvelously ironic twist of circumstances... He was a king raised as an average boy by average people. He grew up to be a young man who was led out into the wilderness and was called by God for a special task. He became a shepherd, and through him, God would rescue his people who were in slavery. He did many signs and wonders that defied nature in order to rescue his people and prove that he was God's messenger. He defied the powers that held his people in slavery and courageously and miraculously made a way for his people out of slavery to a place where they have been promised freedom and security forever. His name is Jesus. And after he died and rose again, no prophet has come after him who knew God face to face, who did such great signs and wonders in order to save God's people. Although there might be many, many similarities between Moses and Jesus, it is a mistake of eternal consequence to see the wrong one as greater. It is a mistake of eternal consequence to see the wrong one as greater. Both were born among slaves, but only Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Both did signs and wonders, but only Jesus did so by his own power and nature. Both knew God, but only Jesus was God. Both spoke God's words, but only Jesus was God's work. Both affirmed God's law, but only Jesus fulfilled God's law. Both interceded for God, or people's, for our, both interceded to spare people's lives, but only Jesus intercedes to spare people's eternal lives. Both were righteous, but only Jesus is completely righteous. Both died at the end of significant ministries, but only Jesus rose from the dead. Both were faithful in all God's house, but only Jesus is the builder of God's house. Both served God's people, but only Jesus ensures the eternal salvation 
of God's people. Both men have been the focus of much consideration throughout history, but only one of these men considers the other. Jesus might reference Moses in the Gospels, but Moses hoped in Jesus. Moses' hope was in Jesus. Again, Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So so to place our focus on Moses is is to miss the point of the whole Bible. To place our, our focus on laws and rules and details is to miss the point of the whole Bible. To place your focus on your own righteousness, on your own spiritual achievements, is to miss the point of the whole Bible. In order to go to heaven and be with God, you must consider Jesus and hold fast to Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are naturally self-righteous. We, we are naturally counting up our spiritual achievements and comparing them to others. But we, we naturally think we're, we're good because of rule-keeping. We naturally think we're good as we compare ourselves to other people. We, we pridefully place ourselves in places of spiritual and moral superiority to those around us. We, we, we trust in our own wisdom. We, we hope in our own resources. We comfort ourselves with, with human praise and human recognition and, and human adoration. Thank you, God, for Christ who died for our spiritual arrogance and our sense of self-righteousness. Mercifully, God, would, would you fix the gaze of our lives on Jesus? Would you allow us to pursue holiness, our, our, our heavenly calling in Jesus, holding fast to Jesus, hoping in Jesus? Would you help us to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus everywhere, even as we speak the truth of the knowledge of Jesus everywhere to our, to our neighbors and our community and, and to the nations? Would you help us to always consider Jesus? Would you help us to always hold fast to Jesus? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.